Hey everyone, it's me, it's Caitlin. Um, I just wanted to do like a little bit of a podcast. I guess it's sort of more of a books podcast. just wanted to talk a bit about books that I've been reading lately. And I also wanted to connect those books with uh, sort of the political moment that we're in. Um, <laughs> what a terrible, terrible week. Uh, ever since January 20th, when um, Donald Trump was sworn in as president, um, we've just undergone a huge barrage of executive orders, um, unconstitutional acts, um, especially the Muslim ban. Um, as I mean, I don't need to educate any of you about it. All of you know what's going on. Um, for those of you who don't live in the United States, it's it's an odd time. It's It feels like half the country understands what's happening and the dangers and um, the really this is an attack on democracy. This is an attack on the foundations of what we stand for as a country. Um, it's disturbing and it's frightening and then there's this other half of the country that just doesn't get it or just doesn't care. Um, I think Reuters did um, a poll recently about people who support the the Muslim ban, the ban on refugees and um, immigrants coming into the country and I think it said like 49% supported it. <laughs> um, that gives you a sense of the division in the country where we have one group of people who um, basically are not disturbed by bigotry, prejudice, hatred. Um, if anything, they think it's okay. And there's another part of us, uh, people like me, who are horrified by what's happening. Um, I, I don't know what's happened in this country. I'm under no illusions about American exceptionalism. I don't subscribe to it. I studied uh, women's and gender studies in college. I know that the founding of this country was based on violence and genocide. I know the violence that has been perpetrated against uh, African Americans, against Native Americans, against uh, all kinds of people, uh, people of color. I absolutely understand that and I'm under no illusions about the goodness of America or anything like that. But I did think that we'd made some kind of progress. Like, I'm a feminist, I'm an intersectional feminist, um, I, I know the injustice that exists in this country with the prison industrial complex and, you know, the poverty and, you know, I myself have endured some of these things in terms of being a working class person, a person who grew up poor, a person who doesn't have access to health care. I know full well the injustices that exist in this country. But I guess intellectually, I thought we had maybe come farther, or. Uh, but the past few years have obviously shown that that we've really made very little progress. And of course, people of color in this country and and the marginalized have always known that. You know, we don't have the privilege of ignorance. We don't have the privilege of not seeing the violence that is done um, on a daily basis in this country. But I think 
it just still shocks me for some reason when I come across polls that say, you know, 50% of people in this country think that it's okay to ban a particular religion from entering the country. But at the same time, I realize that the people who voted for Trump put him in office to enact their agenda, and their agenda was explicitly racist and Islamophobic. It was sexist. It was uh, classist, you know, against the poor. So I don't know why I'm still shocked by these things. I guess I'm just in general shocked. Like, it's a shock to the system. It's a shock to the body. When you realize that there are no checks and balances, that we can so easily slide into autocracy and authoritarianism. And that's what is happening. All these executive orders and nobody's stopping it. I guess I thought, well, if, I guess I thought well, our system wouldn't allow this, right? I mean, you don't know until it happens. Um, I guess I thought there were things in place to prevent these sorts of things and I just daily see that people just accept it. You know, the, the news media is not really doing much and Congress isn't doing anything. I mean, I think he should absolutely be impeached. I mean, why is this not happening? Well, because Republicans control the Congress and if they don't want to impeach him, then he's not going to be impeached, right? I mean, I feel so helpless and I've started calling my representatives in Congress. I don't know if it does much good. I, all of them are conservative, you know. Um, both of my senators are extreme Republicans and extremely right-wing. Um, my representative in the House of Representatives is the same way. They're very pro-life and, um, you know, anti-civil rights and, you know. I, but I make the call anyways because I feel like, well, I'd like to be heard. You know, I'd like to be counted. So... But Jesus, like, I just want to, like, cry. <laughs> I have cried. Like, I I really do feel so helpless. And I'm, I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure how to process all this or absorb it. It just feels like all these body blows one after the other. And you can't even take a moment to recover. You can't even take a moment to gather yourself before the next blow makes contact. And... I don't know what's going to happen and I do worry about the safety of of the world honestly because this is a person who has expressed uh, interest in nuclear weapons and and wondered why we hadn't used nuclear weapons this is a person who was not educated or informed about the world or even curious about the world or other people this is someone who thinks only of his own gratification, his own narcissistic desires. Um, this is someone who does not care about other people, does not care about his children or, or anybody but himself. Um, it's very disturbing that someone like that has so much power and is that power is not being checked. It's not being... Uh, it's not being um, reined in. This really is the time for Democrats to stand up and fight back. I don't know if that's going to happen, though. 
I mean, I just, I was so upset, you know, when people were saying, oh, give him a chance, give him a chance. He's doing everything he said he would do. He never hid it. He was very blatant, very explicit about his uh, agenda. And that was why so many of us were raising alarm bells and saying, this person's very dangerous. And we were unfortunately right. And I just want him to go away and I want him to be stopped and I don't think that's gonna happen and it really scares me but at my time of uh, extreme pain and despair I've been trying to read more I've been going back to like feminist books um and so recently I did read two that I wanted to talk a little bit about the first one that I read was um Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit and um, I really liked this book and it it does give you hope in the dark I mean the title says it all right it's really about uh, what Solnit's trying to do is sort of reorient us and and make us see that people do have power that movements do have power and that there are there is a cause for hope because in the past when people have come together and created movements and protested they have seen results so really the book is her telling us look are things bad yeah they are but we have won at times and we have had victories and there was a time when such victories were unthinkable. And she's really writing about how the thinkable, the unthinkable, is possible. Um, you know, when the suffragettes were fighting, you know, a hundred years ago or more, more than a hundred years ago, they never thought that they would see the day when women did get the right to vote. So her book is about persuading us that activism is not about instant gratification. It's about the long haul. It's about fighting for something now that you may not live to see. It's about the unknown consequences of your actions. The unseen consequences. You know, when Henry David Thoreau wrote Civil Disobedience, he of course had no idea that more than a century later Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi would be influenced by what he wrote. He sent that book out into the world without any knowledge of the impact that it would have and the way that it would change the world. And Solnit says that the cultural things She's not talking just about the protest. She's also talking about language and words and books and ideas and how those ideas spread across the world and through time. So Henry David Thoreau writes his book in what I'm guessing is the 1800s. Um, pretty sure it was. And, you know, a century later, a century more, another, you know, the civil rights movement becomes very interested in this idea of civil disobedience and nonviolent resistance. that book created something that it didn't necessarily plan to create didn't know it was going to create and so we have to 
think about the arc of history, I guess, you know, and that we may not win every battle. We, we may not win every time we protest. But, um, or like, look at the Occupy movement. This is something that both Solna and the book, other book I'm going to talk about by Angela Davis, both of them mention the Occupy movement. The Occupy movement doesn't exist anymore, really. It was, it was something that, um, that existed for a short period of time, and then it sort of, sort of, uh, disappeared. But just because it doesn't exist anymore or it didn't necessarily have longevity doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. It changed the way we talk about capitalism. It probably laid the ground for somebody like Bernie Sanders to become such a popular candidate, even though he, you know, even though he didn't beat Clinton in the primaries. So we have to, yes, we have to be realistic about the challenges that we are confronting. But we also have to be honest that we have had victories. Solnit writes about um, the protests against uh, nuclear test sites in the Midwest, I think in the 90s. And um, she talks about how that did have a few, a few victories and actually led to sort of more nuclear disarmament or at least started a conversation about nuclear weapons and, um, you know, how to deal with, with uh, nuclear weapons. And then she talks about how during the Iraq war there were anti-war protests. People have stood up it, it, just because we don't win necessarily. I mean, the people who protested the Iraq war didn't stop the Iraq war, but they they got into the public consciousness. You know, they did stand up. They did say, this is not okay. Or think of the Vietnam protests. And so there are victories and we have to celebrate those victories. Her book is about reminding us of those victories and reminding us that the unthinkable can be possible. You know, that every victory that we've had, every bit of progress that we've made, at one time somebody said, oh, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. But people came together and they made it happen. And so I think at this moment in time, it's important to remember that, that I'm calling my Congress people every day. I, it doesn't feel like I'm accomplishing anything, but but if enough of us start calling, I mean, I just heard that um, the, Bets the Betsy DeVos nomination or, you know, there were two Republican or GOP people in the Senate who are going to vote against her. And they're doing so because they got so many phone calls from their constituents. So if she's not confirmed, then that could be called a victory for us. When the ACLU got that stay, um, on the the Muslim ban last week or a few days ago it feels like everything's happening so quickly um, that was a small victory it doesn't it doesn't overturn it it doesn't stop it completely but it was a moment in which we had a bit of a victory and some people who were detained were released and you know that was something, and if we don't hold on to those victories, if we don't celebrate them, we're gonna lose this. We're gonna lose our hope. We're we're gonna 
um, we're going to go into despair. And Solnit writes about how it despair doesn't get us anywhere. We do have to hold on to hope. It's not naive to be hopeful. It's not foolish to be hopeful. It's actually profoundly realistic because we see in history and we see in the past that when people came together and protested and did things, things did change. We're not living in a utopia. And she writes about that too, that there are people who believe, well, because nothing, because everything's not perfect, because the world's not perfect, we've failed and we've lost. And that is defeatist thinking. And that is thinking that's not going to lead to any kind of revolution or any kind of transformation or change. If we say, well, because things are not perfect, then, then they're worthless, that's that's an issue you know this is something that I think people could maybe say about you know Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act you know well it didn't cover everybody so it's a failure it did cover 20 million people there are 28 million people I'm part of that who do not have insurance coverage so we cannot forget those 28 million because they're they really are suffering but to say it didn't do anything or that it was a complete failure is not correct and it was a victory of of a sort it wasn't a total victory it wasn't you know health care for all and um we do need to change that but it was a first step and to see trump coming in and wanting to gut it is very frightening to see you know the 20 million people who got coverage could lose it that's a step back so no, we don't live in a utopia where everybody has health coverage and everybody's able to go to the doctor when they need to. But we we went in that direction. And that was a kind of victory, even though 28 million people don't have any kind of coverage. So, But that is because compromises had to be made, you know, with Republicans and stuff. So, um, But hope in the dark is great because at a time when you might feel hopeless and you might feel distraught and in despair it can remind us that hope is actually very important and and it it doesn't make you naive or anything it doesn't make you stupid to have hope it makes you actually realistic it makes you and it's going to help you not burn out and it's going to help you not just sink into complete you know sadness and depression over over what's going on and what's happening so I do um, I do recommend it for that reason I love Rebecca Solnit's work and um, I think it's I think it's important it's a good thing to remember and the second book I read was Angela Davis's recent book freedom is a constant struggle it's um, it's a collection of, there's like a few interviews in there, and it's mainly speeches that she's given around the world. And those of you who know Angela Davis, um, you know that she's very radical, she's very important, and one of her main issues is um, prison abolition. She believes in the abolition of uh, prisons in the United States because uh, prisons are a site where really prisons are a continuation of slavery and prisons are sites of oppression and the reproduction of racism and um, 
and violence. They, they are just petri dishes of violence and vileness, really. Um, and the United States has the most incarcerated people on the planet. We have two and a half million people who are in prison in the United States and a, a large figure of that population is black and brown. It is uh, men of color for the most part, although I think women of color are a growing population in prison. And so the the pieces in the book deal with that. And But she also talks a lot about Palestine and she sees she sees a very important link and connection between the different global struggles for justice and so she feels like Palestine is is the struggle in Palestine the occupation the Israeli occupation of Palestinians is something that we should incorporate into our feminism here in the United States that we should express solidarity with Palestinians and we should see how the the Palestinian struggle is interconnected with the Black Lives Matter movement and the struggles of people of color in the United States. She also sees a connection between the Israeli military and and the violence it enacts and the weaponry that it has as profoundly connected to the United States because the United States funds the Israeli military, it funds, you know, the Israeli state. And um so those things are very connected. There's a security company called uh, GS4 or G4S that she talks about, and um, it just it's like the biggest security firm in the world, and and it's it also um, it, it trained the Israeli military, and like it was very interesting. There was a part of the book where she's talking about how the the police in the United States have become much more militarized. If any of you have seen the protests in Ferguson, then you'll know this, where the um, the police have like, you know, bulletproof vests on, and they had tanks, and they had like all kinds of stuff. And like how absurd that is, you know, this is a police department, this is not a war zone. But um, she said that police chiefs in the United States have actually traveled to Israel and and learned things, I guess learned policing techniques or whatever from the Israeli uh, police, from the Israeli military. So all of these things are very interconnected and uh, and um, it's important to see our struggles as all as connected. And she also talked about how when um, when the Black Lives Matter movement started and there were protests in Ferguson um, because of the death of Michael Brown that there was tear, tear gas sprayed at the Black Lives Matter protesters and she talked about how Palestinian activists um, were tweeting about how to deal with tear gas because the same tear gas canisters were used in Israel against the Palestinians and so the Palestinians were tweeting um, you know I think I, I remember seeing those tweets when it was happening and I think they said, you know, to put milk on your eyes, uh, that would help you with the tear gas, I think. Or maybe that was pepper spray or something. Um, and, I, and I agree with her. It's a very, it's a very um, salient example of the connection between these struggles, right? You know, that 
you have people on the streets protesting against the violence inflicted on black people in the United States and it very much mirrors you know uh, Palestinians who are protesting against the occupation and the violence enacted on, on their lives and their bodies and of course all of this is funded by the same place by the United States so, um, that's sort of the crucial nexus of that book is how we really need to look more deeply at the Palestinian struggle and what Palestinians are doing and we need to show solidarity we need to connect with with that and we need to stand with the Palestinians um, and their struggle for statehood and for self-determination and freedom um, the Palestinians endure horrific violence and repression and um, it's it's just oh God it's horrific really and that's mainly what she focuses on is the global dimension of of the struggle for justice and how all these different movements and all these different struggles are actually interconnected and and um, and it's very useful to look at them that way and to and to see and it, when you're looking at thinking about your activism or your feminism it's really important to see the global dimension of it you know that we are all connected in, in that struggle that people here in the United States are fighting under capitalism and fighting with corporations fighting for clean water um, just like people in other countries are fighting for clean water fighting against corporations fighting against all, a myriad you know of issues and so and so she really centralizes Palestine whereas Rebecca Solnit in Hope in the Dark she centralizes the environment and climate change for Solnit the central issue for her and that she feels like especially feminists and um, activists need to have a grasp on and need to be fighting more for is environmentalism that we are approaching a tipping point in terms of the climate in 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 the atmosphere um, the climate for Earth's atmosphere and, and our planet that you know the the sea the ocean temperatures are going to rise several degrees Celsius we really need to be doing more to save the planet because the consequences of doing nothing will will surely be catastrophic um, so she's much more focused on climate change and the environment and hope in the dark and um, so I mean both of the books are about activism both of the books are about hope um, because Angela Davis herself says you know just the fact that I'm here is is connected to hope right I mean I don't know if all of you know Angela Davis's story but she was um, she was accused of a crime um, she had bought like a gun or something for um, for someone who ended up in prison and so the state of California was trying to charge her with murder she could have got the death penalty and um, and she was imprisoned and her story went global and there were people around the world that showed solidarity and, and stood up and said that this is wrong and she ended up winning and um, 
So she points to her own example to say, look, there is cause for hope. I shouldn't even be here. I could have been executed. I could have been put in prison the rest of my life, but I wasn't. And that was a victory. And I was a woman going against the state, and I won. So she believes deeply in having hope and in believing that things are possible. So I really enjoyed both books, and um, both of them, I think, will, will help you if you're at a point in your life where you just feel very hopeless about the world and, and what's going on in it. So I definitely recommend both of them. and. They're both by Haymarket Books, the publisher. That's the one that put them out. And um, it's like a radical publishing house. And they, they publish a lot of radical uh, feminist texts and stuff. And um, I definitely hope to read more of their books. And I'm going to continue um, reading feminist texts because it's th that's what speaks to me. And that's what sort of sustains me is... To remember that for decades and decades people have been uh, struggling for justice and fighting for freedom and you know these struggles are not new these issues are not new um, and we have to stay firm and we have to stay strong and we have to hold on to hope that we can change things that we can do something I, I don't know what's going to happen with this, with Trump. I, it hasn't even been two weeks. I mean, ugh, it's one thing after another, and I think that's done purposefully to confuse people and to keep things chaotic and to make it so that we're overwhelmed and we don't know where to start and we don't know. I mean, there's the Muslim ban, and then there's the confirmation hearings of DeVos and, and Sessions and... And then there's um, the border wall with Mexico. There's just one thing after another. And um, it, that's done purposefully to, to keep us just constantly unsure of what's coming. But we have to fight and we have to resist in whatever ways we can. And um, that's what we're trying to do here in the U.S., like I said, there's like half of us that get it, or, you know, there's a lot of us that get it, that this is a, a dangerous moment. Anybody who's read about the Holocaust, or at least World War II, and the rise of Hitler, and and Mussolini, and the fascism, and anyone who's, you know, read about these things knows that we're in a dangerous moment. You know, any historian will tell you this is a dangerous moment, and, um... We're doing what we can. I, I'm doing what I can. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting because, you know, when the I was thinking about this the other day about the Bush administration, and you know, we went through eight years of the Bush years. But when, but when Bush came to power in 2001, I was like 12. You know, I was 12 years old. I was, I was in middle school, and I could afford to be oblivious, and I could afford to just be a kid, you know, even though it was very difficult to come of age during the Bush administration and during the Iraq War and the war in Afghanistan, these and 9/11. These were very, these were things that scarred me personally, psychologically, and um, 
and then coming of age during the crash in 2008. You know, my generation in particular, I guess the millennials or whatever, if you think about it, we've come of age during a very violent, tense, despair-filled time. You know, war after war, terrorism, the way terrorism has been manipulated to create fear in us. The, the collapse of the financial, you know, uh, industry in 2008, um, the economy just tanked. We have endured those things as young people. I mean, we've never really known a time when these things didn't exist. <laughs> when the fear and the, the wars and the violence didn't exist. And, um... I think it does make you cynical. I think it does make you scared. It does make you numb in a way. But I've always tried to fight against numbness. I've always tried to be empathetic. I've always tried to be curious about the world, curious about other people's pain and suffering, even though that pain and suffering is often caused by the country that I live in, the country that I'm not proud of, the country I am ashamed of and have been for a long time. You know, when, when Bush was in power, nothing was expected of me. I was just a, you know, a 12-year-old girl, you know, listening to Michelle Branch, who I love and who I listened to recently. I love that album, The Spirit Room and Hotel Paper. I was listening to my Britney Spears and my Michelle Branch, and I could just, I could, but even then I was curious. Even then I was watching PBS and I was reading and I I was educated and informed about what was happening but now it's like I'm an adult you know I'm I'm 27 years old and something is expected of me I have a responsibility to engage with this and to try to do whatever I can and so I feel the burden of that, although I don't want to burden myself too much, you know. I can't change everything overnight. Um, Angela Davis writes about that too. She writes about the civil rights movement and how, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. sort of became the, the focus, the icon, when in fact the civil rights movement was done by countless people who are nameless and that we don't know. You know, she talks about the Montgomery boy, bus boycott, how that was started by black women, by older black women who, um, you know, often lived as, worked as maids and worked uh, like menial jobs, who took the buses in Montgomery and who decided they were going to do the boycott. You know, it would have never happened without those women, you know, without countless black women. Um, you know, fighting and, and being in the streets and taking on the dogs and the hoses. She talks about how there were even children involved in, in these protests. And um, there were countless, countless people on the streets fighting for civil rights. And we all put it on Martin Luther King Jr. that he was the face of it all and he made it all happen. But it was really all these people who did it. And, um, and even now, who... Who overwhelmingly voted Democrat? People of color. The black community overwhelmingly voted for Clinton. Who voted for Trump? White people. He got white women. He overwhelmingly got white men. It was so starkly 
divided by race. You know, it was just so clear. Um, you know, the majority of white people voted for Trump, or, you know, more white women voted for Trump. So, um, once again, I mean, time after time, we have seen how the black community and people of color have been on the front lines and have been the ones fighting for all of us. You know, once, and, and they said this in 13th, the Ava DuVernay um, documentary about the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration, which Angela Davis is in and talks in. And one of the people says, when black lives matter, then all lives will matter. You know, but first we got to get black lives to matter. And that is the first step. Time after time, people of color have been fighting for the rights of all of us. They've, you know, it's the Native American protesters who are fighting for clean water, fighting for a clean environment for all of us to live in. It's, it's, it's the black community fighting for voting rights, fighting for the right to education and, and unset and desegregated schools. And, and uh, you know, right now you see the fight for 15. Um, so, people are fighting and fighting, you know, and that should give us hope that, you know, people are not taking it quietly. People are not taking it shutting up, you know. There are people standing up. There are people protesting, and that has to be where we put our hope, I think. Um, we have thinkers. We have writers. We have people organizing, and we have people creating art. We have Everybody's making a contribution in some small way, whether it's a film or it's a blog post or it's a call to a senator or, you know, there is community and um, we have to we have to help one another through this. But it is a scary time and I don't know what's to come. You know, I don't it's like every day I wake up and I'm like, there's a new crisis. There's a new <laughs> there's a new just horror you know it's just like living in a nightmare but i'm i'm gonna keep reading my feminist texts and i'm gonna keep just doing the best i can with it you know and i i wish all of that for you as well you know that you just keep surviving keep resisting keep doing whatever you can keep reading you know for me reading is a form of resistance we've seen how this administration strips language of meaning how they manipulate language how they devalue it and so we have to keep insisting that language matters that there is meaning that there is truth that there is you know we're not post-truth we're not post-fact like there is truth there are statistics there is there are facts you know and um we can't let them do that we just can't we have to keep writing and we have to keep speaking and we have to keep supporting one another and and just resisting in whatever way is possible for you so that's all i wanted to say um thank you for listening bye